Thanks, J.D. Um, and good morning and welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. My name is Nick Strobel. I'm one of the pastors here and we're so glad that you're here with us this weekend. The last few weeks as a church, we have been walking through the idea of what it means to live a life that worships God. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to walk through what scripture says about worship. And, and what that means is that we've really tried to move away from this idea of worship as an action in a set period of time and, and shift to view worship as a response with our lives to the reality of who God is and what that means for us. So as we think about worship, Sometimes it can be tempting to, to think worship and think, okay, that's that time that I sing um, on a Sunday morning, or, or that's the time that I go to church, or, or that's a time on a weekend, or a time that I serve. And in reality, what we've seen is we've walked through Scripture, is that this idea of worship is a much bigger picture of how we respond to God with our lives. So, so we've looked at why we have affection for God, and what it means for God to be our refuge, and, and we've looked at these various facets of what it means to live a life that worships God. And so much of what we've done up to this point has been the why. Today, we're going to take a really good look at what scripture says about the how. And we're going to look at the idea of godly wisdom. And godly wisdom calls us into a life that responds to who God is and what that means for us. Specifically, godly wisdom equips us to effectively fulfill the purpose that God has created us for. When you read the book of Proverbs, like we've been doing, um, if you've been in the journal with us this past week, we see this book that was written by Solomon to his son. And it was written to his son with a purpose. When Solomon died, his son would be the next king of Israel, right? That's the way that monarchy works. As you die, your son comes up and he kind of runs things. Solomon had a vested interest in his son being a good king. He wanted his son to do well. He wanted his people to flourish. So he wrote his son a collection of wisdom, sayings, if you will, Proverbs, and, and what, what the purpose of that book was, was to show his son how to effectively live the life he'd been called to live, to show him how to be a good king. As Christians, God gives us wisdom for the same reason. God gives us wisdom so that we can effectively fulfill the life that God has called us to live, so that we can be people who take the gospel into the world, that we can parent the way we've been called to parent, um, be the spouse that we've been called to be, effectively live a joyful life where we understand who God is and what he's done for us. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be taking off from Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 today. Um, And as you turn there, uh, what we get to see in Proverbs, like I said, is a very practical vision of what it looks like to have wisdom in how we live our lives, how we can effectively respond to God. Um, so Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And this gives us this foundation for what wisdom is and where it comes from. Wisdom is something that God gives us to be who he's called us to be. So we do not have a God that calls us to a life and then says, Hey, good luck, go figure that out. We have a God that through his love for us, gives us the gift of wisdom and knowledge where he actually takes us and says, this is how you do life in a way that is good for you. Basically, wisdom from God is him explaining the order of the universe. God's created the universe to work in certain ways. And when we try to operate outside the way God has created the universe to work, things do not go well for us. God has a better picture for our life. He wants us to have wisdom. And this word wisdom specifically in the Old Testament doesn't just mean knowledge. Wisdom is not just stuff that you know. The the Hebrew word actually literally translates to skillful mastery of something. So when we think through wisdom, it's more than just knowing stuff. It's literally, in this context, the skillful mastery of living the life that God has called you to. 
It's being skilled at how you interact with people, how you interact with God, how you conduct yourself, your integrity. It's the idea of taking what you know and applying it into reality. And that's good because what godly wisdom does is it extends our view of why we're here. Godly wisdom calls us to the identity that God has given us. It calls us to eternity and it calls us to always remember the big picture of who we are and what that means. When we do not operate our lives in a, in a way that reflects godly wisdom, what we do is we shrink our perspective. And, and that's when foolishness takes over. And when we're foolish, as you'll see in the book of Proverbs, foolishness is always marked by short-sightedness and impulse. So instead of seeing who God is and what that means, we shrink our view and decision-making down to what do I want right now? How is this going to feel? What is this going to do for me right now? And, and we operate on impulse An impulse is foolish and short-sighted, and it's always destructive. When we live a life outside of the wisdom that God has called us to exercise, we always find a life that is marked by destruction. Absence of wisdom is always destructive, and God has not called us to be people that live in the wreckage of a destructive life. He has a better picture for us. So often, we can hear that God has called us to live a life that worships him. And for whatever reason, something in us is almost scared to totally do that because we think if we're really obedient and worship God with our lives, we might miss out on something. Like something in us is afraid that that might actually be restrictive or less fun or or that might be less than if our whole life is just focused on God. In reality, Scripture says the best thing that you can do is live a life that totally worships God because within the wisdom of doing that, you will avoid destruction that happens when we sin. God has a greater vision for our lives than we have for it. And when we trust him, we move away from foolish, destructive decisions. Um, I think all of us probably have areas in our life that, that lead us into destructive behaviors, right? And that's probably different. We, we, we struggle with different things. For me, a big one that I had growing up was anger. I, I had a temper. Um, I was quick to be angry. I, I was quick to want to fight. I was aggressive. I just, I had a temper and that was destructive. Man, it affected my relationships negatively. It affected how I, how I could operate in school, how I would operate in sports, how I learned. Literally, every part of my life was negatively affected by the destructiveness of foolish decisions. And as I got older, that's something that God has continued to work on and shape in me. And and, and as I continue to pursue a different life for that, uh, man, I heard this story that, that really affected me. And this story is a story that I think perfectly captures the potential for foolish, destructive behavior. It was such a clear picture of how destructive our foolishness can be. I have literally never forgotten it. I keep a, uh, I keep a picture of it on my desk. I think that's on the slide there so you can see a, a bigger copy of that. But I keep this picture on my desk because it's, it's a literal in front of my face reminder of the potential that we have to be destructive when we're fools. And it's a story about a guy named Sempronius. He was a council of Rome in 218 B. So this is not like first century imperial Rome, Julius Caesar, um, when Jesus was alive Rome. This is still Republican Rome. It's a city state. They're they're big. They're powerful. They have an army and they have elected officials, right? And Sempronius was elected to be council and that was a big deal. That meant that you kind of helped lead the city. You led the army. You you were in charge for a period of time. And as, as a function of that, like I said, he was in charge of the army. The other thing happening with Rome at 218 BC is they were in the middle of a conflict with the city of Carthage. And Carthage and Rome had uh, what could generously be described as a dysfunctional relationship. Think um, like KUK state, um, Texas, Texas A&M, Russia, Soviet Union, and versus the United States in the 80s, and maybe a little bit now. We'll kind of see how that goes. But um, they did not. They did not really get along. Right. So. 
um, as countries that don't get along tend to do, they were at war. And in 218, a guy named Hannibal, who was literally the Johnny football of, of, of this day, just a short, kind of cocky guy, kind of an underdog, but real crafty, um, had taken about 10,000 men and some elephants over the Alps and into Italy to invade Rome. So Rome... Um, I mean, if you know anything about them, you don't get to invade Rome. There's always consequences for that, right? So they send Sempronius, the guy that this story is about, in an army of 40,000 men to go stop Hannibal. They said, we have to get rid of this guy. You don't mess with us. He has to pay. So he's like, all right, let's go. And he takes his 40,000 men and he confronts Hannibal kind of at the base of the Alps. He hasn't made his way really deep into Italy yet. And Hannibal has 10,000 guys that are tired hungry, just crossed some mountains wearing basically a few bath towels and some leather and, and were exhausted. Right? So you have 10,000 tired, ill-equipped people versus 40,000 Roman citizens. Um, not a professional army, but still 40,000 and 10. I, I'm putting my money on the 40, aren't you? Right? So they have a distinct advantage. Knowing this Hannibal sets a trap. And what he does, he says, yeah, we're going to let them come attack us. And when they get there, we're going to kind of close in around them. And this guy's like, how are you going to get them to do that? That there's a lot of them. What are we going to do? And they start to panic. And Hannibal knows Sempronius. He knows that he's a foolish man. He says, listen, here's the plan. I'm going to set 8,000 of you guys up in a line on the other side of a river, and here's what I want you to do. They're excited. like, okay, okay, what are we going to do? He's like, okay, for 24 hours a day, you're just going to make fun of this guy's mom. Like, literally, that's what they did. You can go read the sources. That was the plan. Just make fun of his mom for 24 hours a day and watch what happens. We'll be fine. That's exactly what they did. So Sempronius, being a good Roman, was enraged that someone would make fun of him and took his 40,000 men and, and just headstrong as fast as he can, attacked right in the middle of that formation. And that's exactly what Hannibal wanted him to do. So as his men charged and got bogged down in an icy river, the, the flanks of the trap closed in, and of the 40,000 Romans that attacked that day, 30,000 of them died. So when you read history, by some accounts, a third of Roman men died at Trebia that day. A third. So every family in Rome, one in three, had a male relative die at Trebia because this guy didn't like being made fun of. 30,000 people died. The consequences of his foolishness led to the destruction not only of a great number of people in that moment, but a decade of destruction after that because they didn't fix the problem. That kind of let Hannibal loose, and, and he burned stuff. And I mean, you can go read history, but it, it really was a decade of destruction because in one moment, this guy made a foolish decision. Our foolishness has the capacity to be equally destructive to our lives and the lives of those around us. And God has called us to a better vision. He's called us to lead a transformed life that leads a godly legacy for our family and the community around us. So God calls us to wisdom because he does not want us to be destructive. He's called us to better things. And the great thing about Proverbs is we see this very practical, very easy to understand, but still very deep, practical outworking of how we worship God, do life in a wise way that avoids destruction and leads us into joy that God designed us for. So given, even with the breadth and diversity of what Proverbs talks about, because there's a proverb for everything, there's Proverbs about how you should manage your money, how you should do relationships, how you should treat alcohol, how you should treat sex, how you should treat business, how you should treat work ethic, how you lead people. There's a proverb for just about everything in here. And even in the midst of that diversity, we're going to see that there's three common characteristics that godly wisdom will always call us to. And the first one is reality. Godly wisdom always calls us to reality. So if you have your Bibles, you should still be in Proverbs. Flip over a little bit to Proverbs 28, and we're going to be in verse 13. 
as you turn there, it says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The most foolish thing that we can do is to not live in the reality of who we are and what's happening in our lives. But for so many of us, that is such an easy instinct. It is we don't like certain things about our life. And instead of living in the reality of the problem, we cover it up. And we sweep it under the rug. And we build a facade. We build an image. And we work so hard on image management because we are terrified of what would happen if people actually knew us. And Scripture says, even though that might be your instinct, that is unbelievably foolish because you will never prosper when you hide reality. You will never prosper when you hide reality. When you hide the reality of, when you don't live in the reality of just really practically your finances because you feel like there's an image that you want to portray and people that you want to keep up with, that leads to debt. You don't prosper when you're in debt. There's not a freedom in that. It's stressful. It is, it is, it just makes you angry. It makes you feel insecure because God didn't design you to live in debt. There's no freedom in that. When you don't live in the reality of your relationships, those relationships suffer. When you don't live in the reality of who you are and who God has made you, you don't prosper like God has called you to. When you don't live in the reality of the consequences of your decisions, you suffer the consequences of your decisions. And God's called you to better than that. We have a tendency as people to not always want to live in reality. So what we do is we cover reality up and we react to a reality that we don't like by working very hard at an image. So when we do that, people never know us. And sometimes we get so lost in covering up the reality that we don't like that we forget what reality even is. And when we get there, we will never prosper because when we lose touch with reality, we lose touch with the ability to be who God has called us to be because we are so busy doing image management that we never actually engage the God who loves us. So here's what I mean. I mean, we can have serious issues in our life. Um, All of us have things that we struggle with. And in the midst of sin or pain or brokenness, instead of dealing with those things and living in reality, what we do is we continue just coming to church and putting on the front. So, like, we know when to come in and raise our hands during worship, and and we can take some notes, and and we know that we didn't really read for a small group because we haven't been reading the Bible because whatever's been going on in our life. But, hey, we know we'll kind of throw in the one sentence that make it sound like we read, right? Maybe I'm the only one that's done that. Um, But we go to these great lengths to make ourselves appear to be something that we're not. God's called us to more than a facade. God's called us to more than an appearance. So instead of dealing with sin or something that we feel like isn't working, we create the facade or we have these agendas and we kind of go behind people's back and we work things the way we want to work things to get where we want to be. And God says, you won't ever prosper doing that because that's not living in reality. But he who confesses and forsakes his transgressions will find compassion. The reason that we don't live in reality is because we're scared of the consequences. The only thing worse than the consequences of getting caught in your sin are the consequences of not ever getting caught in your sin. And that may be counterintuitive, but when we never deal with our sin, it exponentially grows in its ability to destroy our lives, relationships, and legacy. That's why God calls us to confess. And the great thing about this proverb is that it gives us freedom to confess. Because it says, when you confess, you will find compassion. That's the gospel. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could confess your sins and get in trouble. Jesus died on your cross so that you could confess your sins with a confidence that they're forgiven. And God has a compassionate view of us where he wants us to come back to him and find healing. So God calls us to confession because there's freedom and healing in confession. 
There's no freedom in hiding. There's no freedom in hiding. No one that lives a life on the run and, and, and constantly hides has any joy or freedom. They're constantly stressed out. God's called us to better than that. So how do we live in reality? This is why scripture calls us into community, intentional community with one another. And if we don't do that on purpose now, we can live outside of community. We live in a society that moves fast enough and is wired in technologically and is individualistic enough in design that you never have to be known if you don't want to. And that's a dangerous place to be because you won't live in reality. So we unapologetically call you into small groups. If you are a part of Fellowship Bible Church, this is why we say you should be in a small group. We need each other. There will always be areas of our life that we don't effectively see reality in. We need people in our lives to help us see reality. We need people who can say, hey, this doesn't seem like it's going well for you. I'm worried. We need to have a conversation about this. Or, I mean, I've just noticed these patterns. Is everything okay here? I mean, I, just, I, I have a fear. I've noticed these things. Can you help me with these inconsistencies? These things aren't matching up. And when people can show us reality, it opens the door for us to have the security to say, you're right. This is not going well for me, and I don't know what to do. Um, I need help. Will you pray with me? Can we talk about this? Can we have a conversation? Because I don't want to live like this anymore. That never happens if you hide yourself in isolation. When we live in reality, we find the compassion that follows confessing our sins. And so many of us believe the gospel, but we have never felt the compassion and forgiveness of God because we've never really confessed our sins. We're still scared of him. We've never understood fully the compassion and forgiveness of God because we've never lived in the reality that we need it. We try to earn our way back, and God says, don't do that. Simply live in reality. Here's the second thing that godly wisdom calls us to. Godly wisdom always calls us to humility. Turn over just a little bit to Proverbs 18, 12. And humility and reality are are very closely linked. You don't really get to have reality if you don't have humility. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but before humility comes honor. Pride is unbelievably dangerous and unbelievably destructive to us, right? It absolutely is unbelievably dangerous because here's what happens. When we take pride in something, two things always follow us being arrogant and prideful. And one of them, one of them is very logical. When we are arrogant and prideful about something, all of our trust, hope, and expectation is firmly rooted in that thing that we're prideful in. That's why so many of us only operate in areas that we feel confident and have strength in because we can be prideful in those things, right? So if you are prideful about your ability to earn a living through a talent that you have, guess what you will always trust and orient your life around? Your ability to earn money through a skill, right? It's not bad to earn money through a skill, but when you get arrogant in that, what happens is your whole foundation and trust in life is on everything that you can accomplish, And you become your God. You become your functional savior, right? Because that's what you take your pride in. So if you have ultimate pride and trust in what you can accomplish and what you feel like you're good at, guess what you don't trust anymore? You don't trust and rely on God. Because in our pride and our arrogance, we've moved from trusting on God to be our savior and provider and fulfiller, and we've moved into us being our savior and provider and fulfiller. Arrogance always removes your trust from God. And as Christians, we understand that because of what Jesus has done in our hearts, that when we do not trust God, it will not be long before things don't work the way that they're supposed to. God's called us to trust him. Pride is dangerous because it blinds us. Just like with Sempronius, it shrinks our perspective. And we go from seeing a godly perspective of who we are and the role that we play, and we shrink it down to seeing only what we want and what we feel like we're good at. And that perspective, when it blinds us, leads us to destruction. 
We need to trust God, and that does not happen when we're arrogant. Here's the other thing that happens when we're arrogant. Um, And arrogance isn't just thinking that, hey, I'm really good at something, because humility isn't thinking that you're worthless. That's not humility. In the same way that you can err thinking that you're too great, you can also err the other direction and think, oh, I'm just so worthless and nobody can ever... And and you get into this cycle of feeling sorry for yourself. That's not reality either because if, if you know Jesus, God has made you his child and you're valuable and eternal and perfect. So, so you can go too far the other direction, right? So oh, I'm not worth anything. No, that's still not godly wisdom. That's foolish. It leads to the same two things because here's the other thing that happens when we're arrogant. We stop listening to people. A great chunk of the book of Proverbs spends time telling you that the biggest waste of your time is to try to instruct, teach, or correct a fool because they don't listen. And when we get arrogant, we stop listening to people. We stop listening to the word of God. We stop listening to our friends. We stop listening to the Holy Spirit. We stop listening to anybody because in our arrogance, we're convinced that we know what's right. We know what's right. I cannot tell you how much better I am at being a father husband, follower of Jesus, pastor, everything. I cannot tell you how much better my life goes because I have people that speak into my life and correct me when I'm wrong. It doesn't mean it's always the most fun in the moment, right? It's not. But the fruit of hearing correction always brings us closer into joy, freedom, and peace that God has called us to live in. When you're arrogant, you don't listen to people. And that is a scary place to be because when you don't listen to people... It is not long before you will train wreck your life. God has called you to better than that. He's called you to better than that. He's called you to humility. He's called me to humility. And in our humility, we find honor. Because in our humility, we hear God, we understand who we are, and we make corrections to our life when things aren't going the way they're supposed to. Without humility, we will never know the peace and the joy that God's called us to. Here's the last thing that godly wisdom will always call us to. Godly wisdom will always call us to obedience. Um, flip back just a little bit to Proverbs 13, 13. Um, Proverbs 13, 13 says, Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Um, so you can even see how these three characteristics kind of build on each other, right? Like you can't really do one without the one in front of it. So you have to know reality. You have to have the humility to believe reality. And then obedience is you have to properly react to reality. So for so many of us, obedience is kind of the final frontier. Because in a moment of soul searching, we can kind of start to know reality. Um, Then we can even have the humility to believe reality. But the next step is to step out and actually act on reality. And for so many of us, obedience is scary because we're terrified that when we're obedient to reality, when we hear that we have to make a correction, we're terrified that when we make those corrections, we might lose something. That may be true. You might lose your facade. You might lose some of your image. You might lose some of your power. You might lose something of an impulsive habit that gives you pleasure. You might lose those things. But it is far more terrifying to lose out on the blessings of obedience than it is to give up the things that are holding you back from God. And for so many of us, that's that next step of godly wisdom is we know what we need to do, but something in us is terrified to take that step of faith. Something that's just terrified to do that because we're afraid of what we'll lose out on. 
there's a huge difference between knowing reality and talking yourself out of knowing reality, right? This is why sports fans are so difficult to deal with. It's because they may kind of know reality, but just something in them is short-sighted and they can't quite believe it. So that's why, listen, every fall, it's going to be um, NFL training camp here pretty soon. I know Bill Horn's going to walk into my office. He's going to have his Cleveland Browns helmet on that he wears around the office sometimes, right? And he's going to tell me, he's going to tell me, and listen, if you don't know the Cleveland Browns, and if you did, more of you would be laughing, you know how everybody kind of makes fun of France just as a country? Like they lose a lot of wars. Things don't seem to go right. They can never really get their stuff together. And that's the Cleveland Browns as an NFL franchise. It's just, it's all bad. It, literally, it's all bad. You're like, nothing can be that bad. It can. It can. Wikipedia, okay? Just serious. It's not. But man, Bill loves the Browns. So his perspective is just right here. And he's going to walk into my office in his Vinny Testaverde jersey and say, man, it's going to be our year this year. Listen, and he's going to talk me into whatever spare they're going to run out there at quarterback being the next Joe Montana. Brandon Weed, man, this guy's going to be awesome. I'm telling you, you got a new offensive coordinator. It's, Bill, this guy hasn't won a game in three years. You understand that? No, he's going to be awesome this year. Trust me, I promise. And, and that short-sighted just passion, and I want to believe that they're going to be good. And you just can't talk a sports fan into reality. And sometimes we're like that with our lives. We know reality. People have told us reality, but we just can't quite take that next step to live into the obedience that God's called us to. And that's potentially destructive, and God's called us to better. So this says, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. This does not mean, when this says despise, in this context, it doesn't mean like you hate the word of God and like you're throwing your Bible away and getting angry and saying bad things about God. And I mean, I'm just so mad at God, I'm going to go see the Noah movie and show him. That's not what it means when it says despise the word. It's not what it means. Is that too soon? Okay. Um, <laughs> despise in this context, um, if you want to email, it's dhinkle at fbc50.com. I'll read both. Um, despise in this context... In this context, despising the word of God means you ignore the word of God. Despise means that you hear the word of God and you just simply ignore it and you never follow through. And it says that brings destruction because when we ignore the reality and humility that God calls us into, we lead ourselves to destruction. It is a form of despising the word of God to simply ignore the commands of God. But, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. When we obey God, we are rewarded by living more fully into the joy, peace, and eternal vision that God has wired into our souls. So we talked about God has created the universe to have an order. And when we live into that order because we understand why God has made it that way, even though we may never fully understand, but we understand that it's better, good things happen in our souls because we more closely grow into who God has called us to be in the first place. So think about our lives, where God has called us into obedience. What does it look like for us to be obedient to God in our relationships? What does it look like for us to do what scripture has called us to do and how we treat our spouse um, and how we parent our kids? Like, are we shepherding their heart towards Jesus or are we shepherding their hearts towards whatever the world tells us is normal for them to like and want to do? How are we treating the people at work? How are we treating our boss? How are we treating the people that we manage? Um, man, if you're dating, how are you treating the person that you date? Do you actually obey God when he gives you a, a conduct of sexual behavior? Because he said, this is actually better for you to treat sex my way. Or is that just kind of like a literary traffic cop that, yeah, I know I probably, but it's not a big deal. How are you being obedient to God in your relationships? How are you being obedient to God in how you use your time, your talent, and your resources? How are you being obedient to God in how you treat your money? And this isn't just a, you should tithe. I mean, you should. Biblically, God said it is good for our soul to tithe and give money to the advancement of the gospel. But it's also a, how are you being obedient with not being foolish with your money? 
How are you being obedient with being wise with the money that God has entrusted you with? How are you with your time? What do you spend your time doing? Are you obedient to God in how you spend your time? Are you obedient to God in how you use the talent that he has given you? The passions and the abilities that you have, are you obedient to God with how he has called you to use those things? Because he has given you a call as to how you can effectively use those things. How are you being obedient to God? Do you know what the word of God says about that? This is why we call you as a church into daily reading of the scripture. Because when we know and revere the word of God, we find the reward of a life that God has called us to live. When we ignore the word of God, we always find ourselves in the midst of a destruction and pain that God has never desired for us to have. Here's the last thing. And this is the best news that we can possibly get from the book of Proverbs. This is really the best news in scripture is it's that godly wisdom always calls us to the gospel. Here's what godly wisdom does not mean. Godly wisdom is not God telling us, if you will do these things, then I will love and accept you. Godly wisdom is not, you have to work your way to God. That's not what this says. In fact, when we try to make it say that, we end up extremely frustrated because none of us will ever be perfectly humble, perfectly in reality, and perfectly obedient. We we just can't get there. Not on our own. Godly wisdom always calls us to the gospel because godly wisdom is not do these things so God loves you. Godly wisdom at its heart is an overflow of what has happened to us because of Jesus Christ. Godly wisdom is simply God giving us an effective response to live into who we already are because of the gospel. So flip all the way to the beginning of Proverbs in chapter 1, verse 7. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The beginning, the foundation of living the reality of who God is and what that means for us is the fear of the Lord. And this does not mean that we're terrified of God like a schoolyard bully. But what this means is that we have an appreciation and understanding of the weight and power of who God is and what that means. A fear of the Lord is understanding that God is a big deal, that God is sovereign and that he created us. It's also understanding how fully and deeply he loves us and has a plan for our lives. And that's Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, and resurrect three days later to sit at his right hand for eternity. So that, through putting our faith and trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, our hearts are renewed, we become children of God and are promised eternal life. That is the gospel. That is ultimately the beginning of godly wisdom. Because when we begin to live in that reality, everything else changes. God created the universe to have an order. Sin broke that order and Jesus fixes what's broken. So before we can attempt to pursue godly wisdom, we first have to pursue Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus Christ, we will be blind to the reality of who God is. Jesus opens the eyes of our hearts and fixes something that is broken in a way that nothing else in reality can fix. Only Jesus can fix our hearts. That's why the gospel is a big deal. That's why when we look at wisdom, it's so important that we understand wisdom is a reaction to Jesus and knowing God. It's a reaction to the reality of who God has already made us. We can never try to be wise enough to get to God. This is a reaction. So for some of us, we can look at our lives and say, I I, I am foolish and I don't know God and I need to. Others of us can look at our lives and say, I want to live a life that worships God. And there's areas that that's not happening effectively. Where do I need the wisdom of God in my life to pursue reality, humility, and obedience? Um, As I pray, we're going to respond to the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word in um, worship. And as we do that, pray with me that God would open our eyes to where we need him. 
God, I thank you that you are a God who loves us. Uh, I thank you that you are a God who gives us wisdom because you're good. Um, God, I just, I pray that in how you work in our hearts, we would be humble, rooted in reality and obedient to what you've called us to. I pray if we don't know you, that we would hear the gospel tonight, this morning, that we would hear a, a message of a God who loves us and wants us to have a better life than we can understand. I pray that we'd actually believe that and put our trust in you and your son, that you would change our hearts this morning. For those of us who, who, who know you and who are pursuing a life that worships you, I, I pray that you would give us clarity Uh, I pray that you would lovingly show us where we need wisdom, where we need repentance, and and that you would call us into community, daily time in your word, um, attendance in a corporate worship event, and and that you would give us places to serve and love people. God, I just pray that we would hear you and be obedient today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.